Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. We're focusing on the maritime business in this episode. Here at Control Risks, we've long had a very successful maritime business that's well known in the shipping industry. But increasingly, it's well known across sectors, given how prominently shipping and maritime issues have become and their key concerns for people in risk and supply chain, in business continuity, in emerging risk roles, and many more. Claudine, throughout the course of this podcast, you're going to hear some of the most eye-popping statistics that exactly speak to how pervasive the maritime industry is in our lives, even when you're miles from the water. From the beginning of the pandemic, we had clients asking us what's going to happen to supply chains. Are they going to break down? Are they going to disappear? Are they going to fundamentally change? Funnily enough, it's it's only in the last roughly six months that there's been some serious impact in the supply chains that are being felt outside of those who run those supply chains. They tend to be in their own little world. And, and most of us as consumers, as businesses, tend not to realize what's going on in their world. That was Cormac McGarry, an associate director based in our Paris office. If you are not in the industry or if you don't happen to live next door to a port, you may not be aware of the integral role that the maritime supply chain plays. It works on you not realising it. You will not day to day think about that something arrived by ship. And that was Dr. Victoria Mitchell, an associate analyst in our Amsterdam office. One of the things that is most frustrating about the supply chain crisis that we're facing right now is that we appear to live in a society that obsessively forecasts. Even in the very first days of the pandemic, we were already, you know, political risk consultants and maritime consultants and supply chain consultants and economic forecasters were already predicting what 2021 and 2022 would look like. We saw this coming. Why haven't we been able to anticipate this better? So we're talking about supply chain crises, but really you're still able to go to your local local supermarket and get that avocado from South America. That's because despite the rapid changes in supply and demand over the last two years, serious dislocations and shipping that have created all sorts of surges in prices, etc., you're still able to get all the things you need. We're all eating food and not starving because primarily the shipping industry not so much anticipated this, but was ready to respond to it. And one of the things that devastated the shipping industry back in 2008 after the financial crisis was that the shipping industry had prepared for the ever-increasing global demand for goods that was driven by the financial boom. And then when the financial boom came to an end and it became a bust, that demand suddenly dropped. But the shipping world had literally ordered a bunch of more ships to carry all that expected amount of goods. And for the last 10 years, they've been suffering from this problem of overcapacity. What COVID has flipped around in the last two years is this surge in economic demand, which the shipping community was actually prepared for because it had that overcapacity. 
So finally, the shipping world is is coming back around to what was a problem and now taking advantage of it in that it has this capacity to carry all these goods. And actually, what's happening now is that there's a lack of capacity when it comes to containers specifically. So maybe we didn't anticipate it, but we were ready for it. And, and the shipping world in particular is really, really good at adapting. But where we're getting these these quivers in the supply chains, that's those areas where this not just shipping, but the supply chain world in general is still struggling to get away from that addiction to instant delivery, instant, cheap, economic delivery. We're still hung up on that. And that's why we're going to probably continue to see over the next year, these instances that create backlogs in supply chains that lead to price increases. But we're not going to see any devastation of supply chains. I think that's the important takeaway here, because we are fundamentally ready to handle most of these problems. But there are still, no matter the technological advancements that we've seen and how quickly things can evolve, the reality is, isn't it, that it takes a very long time for bulk vessels to be manufactured? Yes, uh, the shipping world has to build a ship with the next 15 to 20 years of economics in mind. And that's precisely what went wrong in 2008 when everybody was predicting a, a continued 15 years of boom in demand. So when that didn't happen, you've got 15 years of building the wrong stuff in the shipping world. So that's something we're 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 watching now in 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 shipping is with this surge in economic demand that has occurred over the last year. Some shipping lines are talking about we need to build more ships now to cater for this. We're, we're past the issue of of overcapacity now. We need to think about keeping up our capacity. And there's a risk there in in the shipping world that. Shipping lines need to really contemplate what they're going to do because is this economic boom really going to last? Is, is it going to justify 15 years of more ships? So that's the long term kind of problem we may be facing in the shipping world. But in the short term, the issue is, is actually really centered around something quite logistically complicated, which is the world of containers and where are containers at any place at any one time to move goods around the world? And Victoria has been has been really keeping an eye on this stuff. So maybe you, you can jump in, Victoria. Yeah, sure. This has been something that I find very interesting because it is not just about getting your avocado onto your whole wheat toast. It is really about whether there is a container available to pack this product and get it from A to B. Where the maritime supply chain has been strained has been, for example, because it's tied in to the wider supply chain. So if there's a different factory production or congestion at a port because there's been a COVID outbreak, the container's basically not where they need to be. We have seen responses in the way that the maritime world responds very effectively to a lack of availability. For example, where vessels have been sent purely to move empty containers to the right place to get the supply chain moving. But we are continuing to see that congestion at ports around the world means that factories on the other side of the world are unable to start loading containers because they are just not available. There's a real challenge about trying to align containers. And this is to do with the just-in-time 
instant purchase planning that we've seen become the norm, whilst this normally works, any slight blip in the supply chain will have an instant impact for container availability. So there's a question of capacity. There's a question of containers being in the right place at the right time. What other sorts of issues within shipping at ports are complicating efforts to resolve the supply chain issues that we're seeing? Great question, Claudine, because there are multiple issues. The first thing I would say is that we're looking at congestion. So when a container arrives at the port, you need it to clear the port. So we need trucks and horniers to be available to move these goods in to port and to return the container in good time so that the container can be shipped elsewhere. That is one of the blockages that we're seeing, which is complicating the port stage of the supply chain. We're also seeing congestion at ports due to reduced labour forces, where there's been COVID outbreaks, but also just generally labour shortages in different locations around the world are creating a block or a bottleneck at that point in the supply chain. Another thing that's come up around COVID-19 has been an increased move at some ports towards digitalization. This is a recognition that there can be efficiencies made where carriers coming to ports have the opportunity to do certain processes in advance and to make the port connectivity a lot smoother. So, for example, if you have a seaport and it's linking into a feeder port upstream, so along a river, for example, the opportunity to smoothen the digital side of these kind of operations is something which ports have been trying to do for a long time, but which the COVID-19 pandemic has certainly accelerated in certain locations around the world. And I think that that's something we're going to be watching in the next couple of years as we see that there's a disconnect between ports who have increasingly digitalized their operations and those ports which are yet to do so. What role are governments playing in helping to resolve the supply chain problems that we're seeing? Well, in many ways, some of the difficulties we've experienced over the last year are a result of government policies, particularly in reaction to COVID-19 outbreaks. You know, that was most strongly felt in the area that Victoria was talking about, where there's labour shortages in ports. A lot of times, particularly in the last six months, some countries have reacted to outbreaks in their ports by shutting down those ports. If you shut down my home port of Cork, for example, it's not going to have a massive impact on the world supply chains. It will be bad for Ireland, certainly. But when you shut down something like Rotterdam or Yanshan port in China, you are interfering with up to 20% of the world's flow of containers. And when we talk about what role do governments play, in the context of COVID-19, how governments treat outbreaks of COVID-19 now and going forward will dictate quite a lot of these ripples in the supply chains that we've felt over the last year and how we will feel them going forward. We'll come back to our conversation in just a moment. But if you're enjoying the global insight and haven't visited controlrisks.com, you're missing out. Every week, we're adding new insights to help companies and investors better understand what's going on in the world. If you'd like to know more about our maritime risk consulting business and receive support direct from our experts, Cormac and Victoria, get in touch. I'm fascinated to know what got you into it, Victoria. It didn't take a a supply chain crisis for you to take an interest in, in maritime. Tell us what got you interested in the area. 
born and raised by the sea, taught to swim by being thrown in the sea. And uh, <laughs> from there on out, fascinated by sea and maritime, looking at it from a legal perspective through law of the sea and working on maritime boundaries and maritime limitation. But And that's the, that's the subject of your doctorate, right? Yes, yes. Maritime security and law of the sea. And that really drove me into thinking about how things work and how important the maritime part of that is. And that's something that's really critical to think about because the overwhelming majority of goods that we receive and are received worldwide are transported by sea. So if there is a strain or a failure, this will be noticed by end users. What about you, Cormac? What got you interested in maritime? I grew up and I'm from Cork, which is the second city of the Republic of Ireland and home to the second largest natural harbour in the world. So I grew up watching ships go by and Cork Harbour is home to over 30% of Ireland's national energy supply. And that's because of its maritime prominence. Made me realise a long time ago that how reliant we are on the maritime world, not just ships, but the things we have offshore and in the water basically make our world go round. One of the things that we've learned over the course of the pandemic is that different governments treat the COVID-19 pandemic very differently, including governments with major ports. This has wrong-footed a lot of our clients. Cormac, when a client comes to us for advice, what are they asking us about? We tend to get clients asking us, what is the next bump in the road? They might say, hey, look, we, we, we were kind of caught wrong-footed when the Suez Canal got blocked up or when Yanshan port was closed down for a week. Uh, so that, that has made a lot of our clients think, well, what's going to happen next? Is this going to become more common? Is it once off? So th- those are the baseline questions. Can we foresee these events? Victoria and I, for example, for the last two years have been monitoring these trends. And if you do monitor those trends, these events are not necessarily unpredictable and you can be prepared for them. So those are the first questions that companies are asking us. Cormac, that's an interesting observation because it fits entirely into the kind of heading of questions that a lot of our clients are asking us, and that is the whole topic of emerging risks, and that is what's coming next. And that is because we've been taken genuinely by surprise by the pandemic, and I think it has a lot of companies scratching their heads and thinking, is there something else that's going to happen that's going to whack us like this that we may not have seen coming? Absolutely. And so you tend to get these kind of tactical questions, which are what is the next bump in the road that will interfere with our supply chains? But ultimately, that question needs often leads to answers of geopolitics, and that requires forecasting quite far ahead into geopolitics. When we talk about bumps in the road caused by reactions to COVID outbreaks, that fundamentally requires an understanding of what a government's reaction is going to be. So there's also the bigger questions then, which we're starting to see companies asking us, bigger questions about the fundamental nature of our supply chains. As, as some people predicted a couple of years ago, nobody, nobody's really doing the whole onshoring of their supply chains, like bringing them closer to home. That hasn't really happened. But people are now really starting to ask those fundamental questions. Am I over-reliant on one or a group of countries? to supply my entire output? And are those one or a group of countries going to fundamentally change in the next couple of years to the point that I'm going to have my supply chain wiped out? 
and not only countries changing, but I guess the climate as well, you know, and the, the vulnerability to places on, on the supply chain to extreme weather events, natural disasters. That's a really important point, Claudine. And I think we've seen it recently in certain places in Asia, the closure of ports on the west coast of India and closure of ports in China ahead of tropical storm had serious impacts on supply chains because not only were they port closures for periods of time, but in the context of container ships in particular, the way that the scheduling is run means that there is then a ripple effect globally because the delays seen in one port will mean that the entire schedule is shifting. The delays are then seen at ports along the routes. So much for the questions, guys. What are we actually telling our clients in response? So the first thing is, is you're doing the right thing by asking these fundamental questions. Because what are your supply chains? Your business is more than likely completely reliant on whatever your supply chain is. So asking the question, like, is, is there one country or group of countries which could be subject to severe changes in domestic or international politics over the next five years? And if that event does occur, it, it could fundamentally destroy your supply chains. So what do I tell clients is well done for asking that question, first of all, thinking about it, because if you don't think about it, that's when you get wrong footed. And when you do start thinking about it, that's where you can start doing horizon scanning and being prepared. And a big conversation we have with a, with a lot of clients is around business continuity. I see a lot of the businesses that I work with tend to have business continuity managers very, very close to supply chain managers, which is really interesting. And often it's very simple solutions. For example, I, I know one client who has a fairly critical supply base in the Middle East, and they've been asking questions about whether there could be geopolitical challenges in the Middle East that might change the security of that critical supply base. And the business continuity solution is, well, we need to be prepared to move back to the model we have we had five years ago, where that supply base was back home in our manufacturing area in Southern Europe. Just asking the fundamental question is the start. And then you can think about business continuity challenges and solutions. And that, that's where we tend to walk our clients through what are the risks and what are the solutions to those risks in the long term. Victoria Cormack, the holiday season is rapidly approaching. In public discourse and in political discourse, we're hearing that the season's under threat. Put our minds at rest, would you? Christmas is not cancelled. That's. <laughs> That's right. It's front and center. Christmas is not. Ladies canceled. and gentlemen, you heard it here first. <laughs> yes, Christmas is not cancelled. You will be able to celebrate the holiday season. We are going to see impacts that are just in place at the moment across the supply chain. So you may not be able to buy the specific toy that you wanted. You may not be able to get the particular pair of shoes you were hoping to find in the sales, but you will see goods on the shelves. You will see food in the supermarket. The maritime supply chain is incredibly resilient. It keeps on going. We have seen responses to the challenges. These have included things like efforts in the US to announce 
beginnings of 24-7 operations. This is intended to improve the number of containers and cargo coming through particular ports, which are critical to the US market. So that and elsewhere, we're seeing the maritime world respond and seek to address some of the challenges in the supply chain. This is just to improve the supply chain, but in terms of whether our holiday scene is under threat, I think that's a definite no from me. Bearing in mind that the shipping industry is planning with the next 15 years in mind, at least, what should we anticipate that the shipping world will look like based on what you guys know about how shipping companies are planning for the future? So... There is the question of how many ships do we need to build for the next 15, 20 years. But a more interesting trend for us to watch from a risk perspective, and when I say risk perspective, I mean for all of us, is the trend in ultra-large container shipping. This became kind of public knowledge when the Suez Canal got blocked up earlier this year. And it's a trend that has been well known amongst us in the in the shipping community for for years now because of economies of scale in shipping the trend has been to increase the size of container ships increase the amount of containers they can carry at any one time and, and that trend is continuing the ships are continuing to get even bigger and bigger and we're at a point now where a single container ship is carrying over 20,000 containers Ooh, that's a lot of avocados it's an incredible amount. Just to put that into perspective, if you put each of those containers onto a train track, you'd be looking at a train approximately 75 kilometers long. When one of those ships gets blocked in the Suez Canal, that is a 75 kilometer long train, which is not delivering its goods where they're supposed to be. That means that singular events like a ship accidentally getting stuck in the Suez Canal, which then blocks up a bunch of other ships behind it, these singular events will have impacts on businesses. So there were a bunch of businesses that had containers on that ship who were disturbed for a long time because they didn't get the container they were supposed to get. Shipping is going to continue with this trend. It's not turning its back on it. And we're going to see more of those events, whether they're caused by accidents, whether they're caused by climate events, which we, we will see more of, whether they're going to be caused by threat actors, terrorists and militants, or whether they're going to be caused by conventional conflict or political decisions between geopolitical adversaries. Because people who want to make those things happen, they can. And we need to think about who wants to make those things happen in the future. Guys, what does the end of this look like? And what does shipping look like in 10 to 20 years from now? The impetus at the moment is about shining a spotlight on the environmental impact that the maritime transport has. And increasingly, we are seeing calls from both activists and also various governments and regional groups to force the maritime world to improve its environmental footprint. So I think 15 to 20 years, the fuel that is used for maritime transport will be greener. We'll be looking at ships using a variety of different fuels and being increasingly regulated on the environmental front. That's that's where I'm I'm seeing it going. And that's an issue that impacts everybody else as well because ships are a huge consumer of or fuel supplies in the world. So the kind of fuel that ships consume has an impact, a ripple effect on the price of the fuel that you put in your car. 
So how shipping adapts to its fueling problems in the next 15, 20 years is one to watch for the rest of us. It's a big issue in the shipping world. All the issues we've just discussed today are secondary in the discussions among shipping companies because the big discussion over the last few years and going forward is what kind of fuel are we putting into our ships and and how are we going to retrofit our ships or build our ships to take new types of fuel? It, it can cost over $80,000 $80, a day to, to fuel a big ship. So that's how important that is. And I think that's a great example on the maritime world as a whole in that we're talking about supply chain crises and the maritime world is responding to that. And that's something that they recognize is a, is a fixable problem, which is why we're seeing increased port operations. We're seeing different vessels carrying containers and we're seeing changes around transshipment movements and using different ports. So there's some flexibility in that, but there isn't the flexibility in the same way for the environmental impact of shipping. And that's what's driving the particular concern at the moment. What's also the statistic around the way mariners were affected during COVID? Because I think, you know, thinking about the labour shortages that you were mentioning, Victoria, the last sort of 18 months have been very, very difficult. They have been, Claudine. They have. And I think there's also a government issue as well, in the same way that Cormac's been talking about how governments have responded to COVID-19. Governments have responded differently to entry into their country. So crew change has been a stark issue of concern during the pandemic, where many countries around the world have allowed goods to enter the country, but they have not permitted seafarers to change when they've called to port. So we've had hundreds of thousands of seafarers affected, both those unable to disembark a vessel and those sitting at home unable to work because they're not able to join a vessel. That has resulted in diversions to ports to affect crew change. But we've also seen a great deal of safety concerns where seafarers have been beyond contract and they've been exhausted. We've seen COVID outbreaks on board where vessels have needed to divert in an emergency to disembark impacted crew. And this is something that we're still continuing to see and we will continue to see because there is an absence of a global agreement on this issue. So we will see continued calls from industry, also from international organizations like the International Maritime Organization, but absence a international agreement on crew change, this is a group of people who will continue to be affected. With implications for us all, I tell you, I am never going to sit daydreaming at a port or on the coast anywhere again, quite so absent-mindedly. Victoria, joining us from Amsterdam today, thank you. Thank you for having me. And Cormac McGarry dialing in from our Paris office. Nice to have you. Thank you, guys. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay tuned with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicky Bufton. For me, thanks for listening and bye for now. And goodbye from me.